This week, we're interviewing Mike Makowski, creator of Space and Miniature, to find out more about the wonderful hobby of building scale models of historical spacecraft. Something I'm sure that many of us have either attempted or contemplated attempting. We'll also get you up to date with the news from the world of spaceflight this week. Please share with us your own spacecraft models. We'd love to see them. We're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you could do us a favor and press that share button, maybe your spaceflight loving friends would also like to listen to this podcast. But right now, please enjoy episode 76 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 76 of our podcast. Emily, I see you had a little cheeky trip to Houston over the weekend. <laughs> How was it? <laughs> I had a wonderful time. Uh, it was incredible. I, I met up with some friends there. It was a little cold, but that was okay. I went to the Space Center. I got to see... The love of my life there, Skylab, <laughs> which I've been in an affair with for qu- an open affair for quite some time. So <laughs> let's just be real about it. Yeah, I got to see Skylab. I got to see a bunch <laughs> of other stuff, too. So I, was, I had a wonderful time. Yeah. Was there anything you saw this time around that you hadn't seen on previous trips? That's a great question. And you know what? I'm embarrassed to admit this, but it was actually in Skylab. I know. For some reason, and I feel like such a dummy, I, I kept missing the spinny chair experiment, the vestibular experiment in Skylab, and I finally saw it this time. Of course, it's on its side. You yeah. know, in my mind, I'm used to seeing it vertically with somebody spinning in it. But um, yeah, this time I was like, oh, wow, there it is. Nice. I feel like every time I go there, I discover something new, and I'm hoping to go to the Cosmosphere later this year, around December, what we've talked about. So I can kind of have that experience there where I discover new things. Yeah, I think all these museums, there's so much stuff that can be overwhelming, especially if you walk into the Skylab thing, which is this big exhibition. You can exactly. you can miss some of the little things that you would think you'd want to look for, but you're just so overwhelmed by it and with other people being around, all that kind of stuff. So I get that. Yeah. Uh, which is why I asked the question, because I, I know every time I go back somewhere, I always catch something. I'm like, how did I not see that before? Exactly, exactly. But it was magnificent, and I hope to go back uh, later in the year. We'll see. Sweet. Anyway, um, let's get on with this week's interview. We're joined by Mike Mikowski, creator of Space in Miniature. Mike builds models of historic spacecraft and has written books and has shared lots of his reference material on his Space in Miniature website. Last year, we took a look at Lego models, and while that is an incredible art form in itself, These kinds of models are a different beast altogether, so we wanted to feature this hobby as well. Have you ever built any models, Dave? Uh, I've never, I never got around to building space models because, oh, other than Lego, obviously, uh, because I used to try and do the model planes when I was a kid, but I have really fat fingers. It would always end up a mess. I could always get it together, but there'd be glue in the wrong place or a fingerprint of glue or paint somewhere that shouldn't have been. I just, I found it frustrating. But every time I go into one of those hobby shops and I see the, 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 pack the sets i'm like oh maybe i maybe should have another go but i'll stick with lego for now i think there's still enough in that in that world to keep me occupied i think i'll stick to lego as well because i do have a few models they're not um they're definitely not scratch built i I purchased them and they're very small i have a few titan rocket models i have the 3c 
and the 3e which i purchased and basically all you do is you put it on the stand that's it that's all that's all the building you do but um i'm loath to really purchase any more only because my cats like to knock them over yeah uh, yeah of course so yeah <laughs> I've, I've had plenty of times where i had to rescue the titan you know 3c from the cable box or something like that so I don't know, but yeah. it's something I've definitely thought about because I think it, it it looks like a lot of fun and it looks like kind of I like detail work, so yeah. I think it interests me. Yeah, I think that's the other beautiful thing about Lego because I'm big, so everything vibrates as I walk around, and uh, <laughs> my Lego sets have <laughs> fallen off your shelves and all that kind of stuff, and they fall on the floor and they smash up. You build them again. If a real, if you, if a proper model falls over and smashes, then that's a, a whole that's other it. headache, isn't it? That's such a uh, a heartbreaking moment. Whereas Lego, you get to go, oh, okay, well I'll just do it again. Uh, so uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Obviously, with the with the cats, that's definitely a thing. But for even with just me oh my god it's a nightmare yeah. i have a broken saturn 5 because of the cats i have a saturn 5 <laughs> with no command module at the moment i don't know where the <laughs> command module is i don't i i it just it, it escaped uh, yeah. they abort they aborted somewhere i don't know they're somewhere in the house well let's get on with this interview and enjoy well if you have changed any it's really something else so welcome, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us. So we're just going to get right back to the beginning, uh, your origin story, so to speak. So what this is kind of a, a, a softball question, but what got you into space flight? Well, like a lot of people, I think, who listen to this podcast, you know, we're called children of Apollo. OK, I'm 68 years old. I was born, you know, in the 50s. Grew up as a kid with the space program and Star Trek. And, you know, when I was in, in grade school, the nuns would wheel the TVs into the classroom and we watched the Mercury and Gemini launches. And I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So I went through high school, went to engineering, got an engineering degree and had a very fortunate career in the industry. But, you know, I was inspired, always been inspired by space exploration and astronomy and you know the sky and airplanes and the stars and it's the whole bit it's like, like a lot of us we all we love that stuff and i've been fortunate enough i got electrical engineering degree and i got my first job with mcdonald douglas in st louis in 1977 and uh, i've always been interested in building things and miniatures and i never quit that a lot of a lot of young guys you know they'll build models in, in high school or whatnot and then they discover cars and girls and things and <laughs> that gets in the way but i never i was able to, to fit it all in and so um i've always built uh space models and stuff so yeah you said there that you uh you obviously you worked in the space industry for a number of years until you retired uh can you tell us a bit about that and and do you have any highlights from that part of your life sure i started i was very lucky um when I went to school, went to college, I picked a school that had what they call a co-op program, which is where you take a semester off and go work in industry. And um, the University of Arizona down in Tucson is where I went to college. And they had a deal with NASA's Marshall Space Center. So I spent three semesters in Huntsville when I was in college. Nice. And, and there I got to work on oh, a number of different things, but it got my foot in the door to actually, you know, get out with, uh, with that experience on my resume and got me hired by McDonnell Douglas. And so, so there in St. Louis, one of my first projects was to work on the space shuttle. 
In St. Louis, they built the F propulsion pods that sit on the tail, you know, the tail of the shuttle. Those are built by McDonald there in St. Louis. And I, I was working on uh, electrical wiring harnesses for that. Very cool. And then we did a bunch of other things. We tried to get into the satellite business that never worked out too well. But I, I did do a, a number of studies and technology work for, for satellite programs. Also worked on the original uh, X-30, the National Aerospace Plane, which was supposed oh, wow. to be runway to orbit, wow. if you recall that program. That was in the 1980s. And then at some point, McDonald was just, they were focusing on airplanes and not space. And so I transferred to a McDonald division uh, near Washington, D.C. that was doing work for NASA Goddard. And so there I got more involved in the science satellites and NASA programs and also hooked up there with a bunch of McDonald people who were then doing contract work for uh, Motorola, who was building the first global commercial communication satellite constellation called Iridium back in the 1990s. And with that connection, they were really doing the work here in Arizona. And by that time, my parents had retired to Arizona. My in-laws lived out in Arizona. And I took the opportunity to uh, make a career move, move the family out near, near you know, the kids' grandparents. And so I'm uh, out here in Arizona in the 90s and been here ever since. And, once, and we helped uh, build Iridium as a McDonnell Douglas subcontractor. Uh, when that program ended, I jumped over to a local company called Spectrum Astro, which got bought and sold six or seven times until I retired as an employee of Northrop Grumman. And we did satellites for NASA, such as uh, Landsat 89, GLASS, the Gamma Ray Large Area Space Telescope. Lots of fun stuff. Got to work on those, build them, design them, support launches, sea launches. Saw a bunch of launch shuttle launches in the in the in the meantime, which was maybe my favorite. Um, you know, working on National Aerospace Plane, that was cool because it's it's runway to orbit. Yeah, and we still haven't figured that out. We still aren't able to do that. And that was such cool technology and such really neat people. That was a fun project. And maybe the other one was Iridium, because we built and launched 100 satellites in like two years. And now, of course, you know, SpaceX and Starlink, they're doing that. But this is 30 years ago. Yeah. We're the first first organization to pull that off. Um, so so those those may be the two were the highlights. But the fun ones, of course, were here in Arizona. Where I actually got to play with the hardware and touch the satellites and do launch supports and fun things like that. Very cool. I'm going to redirect a little bit. We're going to talk about your model making. Now, sure. you probably started making models during your childhood, but... The model that I remember the most, one of your first, probably one of your first models is the very high fidelity Skylab one you made in the early <laughs> 70s. So what's really started your interest in, in making, you know, these high fidelity, you know, realistic models? Because I've seen this Skylab one for, for those of you who are at home who can't envision it. It looks exactly like the one that flew in space, not the McDonnell Douglas version, but the one that got torn the hell up during launch. So Mike, tell us a little bit about what got you interested in doing that. Well, like I say, you know, a lot of us start as kids building model kits. And, you know, as a youngster, I built all the classic Mercury and Gemini and Apollo kits from Ravel back in, back in the day. And, and even then, you know, I was so inspired by this stuff. I was still in junior high in the 60s. And I scratch built my first scratch built model was the Ranger Lunar Probe. Mm. And, you know, made that out of cardboard and swizzle sticks and hubcaps <laughs> from 
from uh, model car kits. And then I made a surveyor model. And these are just working from photos. Wow. So I scratch built stuff when I was still in junior high. And, and the thing then with, with the, uh, the, the fancy models is you, you, when you really get into this, there are not a lot of model kits out there. We talk about, you know, those classic Apollo era ones and yeah, there's space shuttle kits and a few other things, but you know, in the sixties and seventies, if you wanted a Viking Mars lander or a Skylab or anything out of the, you had to do it yourself. So now you had to have, you know, maybe a little more skill and patience because it's not a kit. And so I would start making my own models. Like I say, the, the lunar ones, uh, when I was in college, I built, I, I built the uh, Viking for the local schools planetarium. This was in the seventies when Viking landed and they, they were going to do a Viking show and I say, I'll build a model for you. And so I built a very nice little Viking model. And, and so I got into scratch building things. And then you, you go to these, there's hobby clubs. There's clubs for people who build uh, plastic models called the International Plastic Modelers Society. You can all go out there, look up IPMSUSA.org. And they do everything. They're mostly military history kind of things, airplanes, ships, tanks. But there's a little subgroup in there of guys who like to build these historical space models. And the organization, they have clubs and they sponsor contests. And you go to these regional and national shows and you find these other guys who like to build the stuff you like to build. And you start talking, you say, gee, I wish there was a better model. Well, I took the model and I added some detail. And they do this to all their models. They take an airplane model and, you know, it's an F-15E, I want to make an F-15F, so I got to add this part or take that part off. So you're modifying the stuff from the kits. Well, you can do the same thing with space models. You can add details, you can make slightly different versions, you can correct the inaccuracies. So me and my buddies, we'd start collecting that. Now, working at McDonnell Douglas, you have a lot of access to all the accurate information, maybe on their Mercury and Gemini programs from their library and technical drawings. And my first bosses were the guys who built those, yeah. you know? <laughs> and every once in a while, they'd have a, a session where, hey, guys, those are old programs. We're done with that. Go clean out that. We need more room for the filing cabinets. So they, they thin out stuff. And after work, I'd hang around and go through the dumpsters and take things <laughs> home. And I've still got some stuff, which I think no one else has. Uh, but I've, you know, I share that with people, you know, so it's out there now, but you know, there's things like lunar rescue Gemini drawings. I, I think the only reason that information is out there, cause I pulled it out of the trash one day wow. in 1975. <laughs> That's like awesome. That. So, so cool. anyway, so, so you get into this and you find out that people love this kind of stuff and they want to know how to make their models more accurate. So my local club, we, we had a little publication we put out and it had stuff on how to make your airplanes more accurate, how to make your cars nice and shiny. And me and my buddies, we'd write articles on how to make your, your spacecraft more accurate and look right. And so from there, we started networking and you go to these national shows and, and you, you talk to more people. And by, by the mid 1980s, I started a little newsletter on this. I collected people's names and addresses. And we'd exchange information and say, hey, what are you looking for? I'm, well, I'm looking for a drawing of, you know, Galileo to Jupiter or whatever. Do you have that? Yeah, I saw it in NASA archive. And we start <laughs> swapping stuff and we see what kits were out there. And then, of course, it all exploded, you know, when the Internet came along in the 90s. And, and so then I graduated from doing that newsletter to taking some of these articles I did or I'd have some of my, my buddies across the countries write articles 
on, you know, how to accurize your Gemini or how to do an Apollo lunar lander. And there are other researchers who would do things like uh, they'd collect all the information on the different thermal blanket patterns on the Apollo lunar module because each mission was a little different. So I would take that and distill it and put it in a format that modelers could use and publish these booklets and, and, and sell those. And uh, those have become very popular. So, so that's how I got into that. And that's how this kind of grew. We, we started out in clubs. We started out with newsletters. We would meet each other at the national conventions. We generate a network like any other hobby community, any other community, you know, in, in the space hipsters and the space fest community, you got people who collect autographs. You got people who, mm. you know, they want to collect little meteorite samples or they, you know, got their own thing. They collect, we collect and build models. Do you think that this is almost a dying art? Do you think that uh, kids these days with the internet don't have the time and patience to 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 build kits, let alone scratch building? Do you see a lot of youngsters coming through in these communities, or or, or unfortunately, is it something that isn't necessarily around as much anymore? I think there was a time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, where that was a, a concern. But what's happened is I see a lot of young people in the space enthusiast community. I see a lot of young people building models. What, what's happened is, yeah, there's all the bit with the digital games and stuff. But then you got little guys building things out of Legos. Mm. Kids love Legos. And Legos is you're creating something. You're, you're following instructions. It's You're just snapping parts together. But then when you're done, you've got something you made and you followed instructions. From there, you can graduate to, oh, look, a plastic model kit. I can snip these pieces off and glue them together instead of snapping them together. And so, yeah, I think there's still, we still see a lot of young people. You know, when I go to my, my hobby shows, we see a lot of people of all ages building this stuff. And in terms of the hobby itself, it really is coming along. Because with the internet, people can exchange information, yeah, yeah. 3D printing. There are guys out there who are taking for example, there's a large-scale Apollo lunar module that somebody put together, and he made all the files available. You can get it on Shapeways. It's expensive, but it's super detailed. It's very accurate, and, and people are doing things with uh, CAD design and 3D printing and making limited run, a little pricey maybe, but you can get kits of stuff you would have never thought you could get model kits of 15 years ago. So I think we're really living in a great time right now for guys in the scale modeling hobby. There's all sorts of stuff out there that you, you wouldn't have predicted 15, 20 years ago. Is the consensus that 3D printing is good for modeling or is there some pushback against it that it takes away part of the challenge of, of doing things from self, particularly with perhaps scratch kits? I know like obviously you buy a, buy a set and it's all been printed anyway, isn't it? So, or you've just got to put it together. What's the consensus in the community about that? I think it's, it's uh, twofold. One, it's good in that it's giving us really nice quality stuff that you wouldn't get from a major, you know, monogram or, you know, Ravel, which doesn't even exist anymore, you know, Tamaya or the Japanese companies. So, so, you're going to see stuff because they can do smaller runs at a reasonable price and get a really nice product. Yeah. So you're going to be able to get things you're not normally going to have otherwise. So that's a plus. 
On the downside now that 3D printing is becoming available to anybody in their home, people design the files. You can download the files and print it yourself. Uh, the quality isn't always there yet unless you get a really high-end resin printer. I haven't gone that way yet. What I've started to do is to try to learn the CAD software because for me, okay, I'm going to build a, a Gemini lab of some sort. Oh, I need to make a little bracket here. I can make it out of bits of plastic, but if I could design it and print it in 3D, then I can make a whole bunch much yeah. easier. Uh, but I still got to learn the software and then figure out, you know, what kind of printer to buy, but I haven't got that far yet. It'll make things easier. I think there's still always going to be a place for guys who just work with materials from the craft store and do things from scratch rather than 3D print at all. I think you'll have both. But on, on overall, I think it's, it's going to be a plus for the hobby. Okay, relax, everything's okay. So out of all the models you've made, do you have a favorite or a couple of favorites, or is that like trying to choose a favorite child? Um, that's a good question. I think maybe the one I'm most proud of is uh, Mir Space Station. Mm. There's a Mir Space Station. It's actually a snap-together kit from Ravel, and they reissued it uh, from the Armageddon movie. They added some extra parts. And it's actually not a bad basic kit, but it's not very detailed. Yeah. Well, there's this fellow out in, in Europe who makes – uh, again, aftermarket resin kits and photo etch, which is like little pieces of brass that have all sorts of detail on them that you can add to people, add them to airplane models, ship modelers use them. And and uh, the space guys, uh, we use them now too. He made a detail set to add to that Ravel kit for a Mir space station. So I took this and did it all up. I, I studied photos and the NASA drawings and I scratch built a little docking module and added all this little photo etch and all sorts of little wires and all sorts of little blankets and painted it up to look like it was all weathered. I didn't, I did it before the collision with the progress because I didn't want to make a smash solar panel, but, <laughs> but that thing took a lot of time and I had to learn a lot of new techniques working with the metal parts and I, I thought it came out really nice. And I did that maybe 10 years ago. And I finally, last year, built a space shuttle Atlantis to dock to it. Oh, wow. And, uh, so I th I'm real happy how that came out. That's one of my favorite things that, that I've resulted. Tell us about the, the ones you've made, which you don't think get seen often enough that you wish people would see more. Well, the, the, the mirror doesn't get seen because it's super fragile. Right. Uh, I do. I did make it so all the antennas and solar panels can come off. And I took it to one space fest in Tucson once, but it doesn't doesn't travel well. So it people don't see that very often. I, I did write a, one of my booklets on it uh, that explained how I did all that. And, and the idea there again with my booklets is is to share the resources I've been able to come up with that I put into a format that other hobbyists can use and uh, make sure this stuff gets spread around. And, and I'm happy to share the techniques that I've learned. I mean, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time and you learn certain tricks and, and I, I have a lot of photos in these booklets and they're really how-to books on how to accurize or maybe even scratch build a model like that once in a while. But, but uh, that one doesn't get out much. Some of the bigger ones, they're not gonna get out much. Um, 
Another another project that I've worked on lately is Gemini is one of my favorite projects because again, when I started my career, the guys I worked for built it. And there yeah. was a lot of Gemini stuff around the company that you could, you could research. And what I found is back in the 60s, if if you look at some old study concept from 1964, it had Gemini in it. It, it absolutely had a Gemini because, you know, you're doing space stations and military stuff, manned orbiting lab, even even Mars projects. There's a Gemini in there. So I'm trying to collect anything that had a Gemini in it and documenting that. I, I wrote a paper on that last year for AIAA conference. I keep finding more. It's it's a fun little pursuit. And I built models of most of them. Mm-hmm. There's actually some that are kits. But some I've had a scratch bill and, and those don't get out too much because they're they're fragile and they're, they're big. It's a pain. You know what? Um, This is kind of off topic and I'll get to my next question. I swear in a second, Dave's <laughs> like, oh, my God, no. Um, I want to see somebody do a Skylab dock to like Columbia or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like the reboost and maybe Jack, like a itty bitty Jack Lausman with like a remote control thing. Like uh, <laughs> I did it. I docked it or something. I don't know. There is a Skylab kit now. There, there's a fella. Yeah. It's, it's called Real Space Models. Glenn Johnson runs that out of Florida. He does some really nice stuff. And a few years ago, he put out a Skylab kit in one to 144 scale, which matches space shuttle kits you can buy. So you could do that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I like your, is it the broken version or is it the one that came out of the factory and was put in the Saturn V? The Skylab is the one, yeah, you saw it's got the two shun shields. It's got a broken solar array with the wires hanging out. Yeah, with the wires. I mean, I had I got pictures of that. I remember when I was, I was there in Huntsville as a co-op, Somehow I found in a headquarters building where they hipped all their photos. I said, hey, I'm a co-op. I want to look at some Skylab photos. What do you got? Oh, here, sir, is this file cam that will take whatever you want. So I got pictures on the fly around with all the damaged stuff. Yeah. And with all the, it got barbecued a little bit as well. Yeah, barbecued on one side and the wires hanging out the other one. So I put that on my mall. All right. Oh, one more story on that. One more story. No problem. I'm walking down the hallway in one of the labs in Huntsville. And I just look into this guy's office and I see hanging on the wall is this gold foil pinned to his bulletin board. And I knock on the door. I say, hey, sir, what is, is that? That looks like what they used for the Skylab sunshade. I says, yeah, I was one of the engineers who helped design that. That's a, that's a scrap piece of the sunshade. Can I look at that? Yeah. Hey, can I cut a little piece off and make them out? Oh yeah, sure. Go ahead. Just don't melt it down. It's made out of gold. <laughs> so my model has the same actual gold covered mylar that was used on the real skylight. No way. Uh, okay. That's blown my mind. That's awesome. That's freaking awesome. That, that is, is amazing. Awesome. Yeah. The one they had to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. The one they sewed together. Yeah. Like, and they had like a few days to get it up. That is Freaking awesome. Okay. I'm freaking so out cool. right now. I so love cool. it. Gosh, now I'm like stuck on Skylab. I need to stop. So <laughs> does the space modeling community, you, you've touched on this a little bit. You told us about um, some events. Uh, what kind of events and, and groups do you guys have? Well, the events are, are centered around, mostly it's our, our national convention, which is held in usually in July. And it's held, sometimes it's held the same time as Space Fest which is a problem for some of us. Anyway, it rotates around the country and it's a big convention. It runs about four days. And again, it covers all topics, airplanes, cars, ships, 
figures, beautiful workmanship, and a gigantic vendor room. So it's like the world's largest hobby shop for four days. Nice. And what we have now done since many years ago are space modelers. We hang out there. A lot of us are able to go most years. And that's the time we get together and see each other and swap stories. And we always have like a seminar or something where somebody gives a pitch on what they built lately. So that's where we get together in person. There are smaller regional shows. Again, they don't always have as many people or as much participation. So it's sort of a once a year thing where the bulk of the space modeling historical guys get together. But around in the late 90s, the national show was in Orlando. And it was in the summer and it was about the time of Eileen Collins' launch when she commanded the AXAF launch. I think it was SCS 91, 93, one of those. Anyway, we got some passes to go to the causeway to watch the launch. And, and so a bunch of us drove from Orlando three times because it was delayed and where we watched this launch. And so that was like a momentous occasion for a space model. We got to go to a model convention and see a shuttle launch. Amazing. And, and so we said, well, gee, we got to find a way to, to keep in touch with each other. So it was at that event that was birthed one of these online chat groups. You know, Yahoo used to have groups like this, and we were on Yahoo for quite a while. Now we're on IO, something called IO groups. If you go on one of these, these chat groups, this is where we have daily uh, email feeds and people ask questions. It's a very friendly group. If you want to hook up with them, look for space-modelers on IO, I, you know, letter I, letter O groups. And uh, you'll find us there, very friendly group. And that's where we hang out all the time. We also hang out on Facebook. There's a couple of uh, historical space modelers and a general space modelers, which has a little bit of sci-fi, but we're on Facebook too. So that's where we stay in touch on a day-to-day basis. And then once a year, if we get together, it's at our plastic modelers convention. Fantastic. One of our patrons called Ed, uh, I can never say his surname, but his name's Ed. And uh, he is doing virtual reality exhibits of spacecraft. And he's always looking for reference material. And he says, what references do you use to guarantee accuracy? I know you've mentioned a few things, but is there a, is there a good place to start if you really want to guarantee accuracy for you when you're doing these kind of things? Well, like a good historian, you want to start with the, with actual source material. So um, there's a lot of NASA handbooks for the classic programs, Apollo, Mercury, Gemini. Uh, they put a lot of technical handbooks out. Uh, Apollo experience reports have a lot of neat diagrams. Uh, shuttle mission reports and press kits. Um, and, and there's sometimes you can get uh, technical papers uh, that have uh, a lot of nice drawings. For example, I just did a booklet on shuttle payloads, and I've tried to find ones that were visually interesting. And if you recall, um, sometime ago, one of the shuttle missions, they built this truss structure in the payload bay where they would you know, snap these parts together, and it was sort of a predecessor of some of the structures used on the space station. I found a technical paper that described that experiment and it had dimensions for all the trust pieces. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and so there are sources, you just gotta do the research. If you want to make an accurate model from that it's kit needs detail added, or if you want to scratch build something, um, it's just a matter of hunting for the authentic source material, which is NASA and industry documents. All right. 
And another one of our Patreon subscribers, uh, Don Irwin, has said that he loves your YouTube videos and that your videos inspired him to work on some kits he's had for a while. His current project is a Real Space Models Lunar Orbiter. He has a couple of questions. What is more enjoyable? Building or seeing them when they are finished? And do you build for fun or do you enter into shows and contests? That's a good question. I um, I enjoy both aspects. A lot of times I just like the research sometimes. Mm. And I do like building. You know, once they're built, they go on the shelf and I don't really sit there and, oh, look at that. <laughs> uh, but it's nice to have a collection. Once you start building a, a theme of, of things like my Gemini series, it's, it's nice to see your collection built up or I built airplane kits too. And I've got a lot of experimental, I got a whole shelf of X planes. And so it's kind of nice mm -hmm. to see that built up. But years ago I would build for contests when I, I don't build for contests, but when I built something that came out good, I would take it to these national shows and, you know, enter it in the contest and you, you hope you get recognized. Uh, frankly, that, that super detailed mirror that I built, I took it, entered it, didn't place, you know, they, they picked the top three in a category and you have a category for space models and it didn't place. And, and that's because, well, the solar, they were a little bit crooked maybe one of the antennas was bent and the, there's a little gap here, you know, they're looking for super perfect craftsmanship, but you know, I was happy with it because no one else has one. Yeah. You know, I, I like to build stuff that you don't see every day. And so now I build just for grins. Does it look good on my shelf? All right, we're good. If I take it to a show, it just, hey guys, what do you think of this? You know, if it wins, it's fine. If not, that's okay. Cause I'm, I've, I've shown over the years that I can, you know, win an award. So I don't have to do it anymore. Dave, do you have anything else? No, um, Mike, tell our listeners where they can find your books and where they can find out more about what you're doing. Great, thanks very much. The book series is called Space and Miniature. I've got nine titles on all the big space programs and a bunch of other miscellaneous topics. And they're oriented for people who want to learn about building space models. And they're good for artists and digital artists as well, because it's it's a reference book. You know, it, yeah. it tells you what they look like and, and all the different configurations. So just go to spaceinminiature.com. It's all one word, and you'll find the information there. If you go to YouTube, just search for Space City Mike, all one word, and you'll find me a whole bunch of, and they're short videos. You know, I look at videos sometimes and they're, they're 45 minutes long and who wants to listen to a 45 minute podcast? Gosh, that's, <laughs> that's gotta be boring. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I ask the same question all the time. So I like, I like <laughs> to keep mine to like five, six minutes, the videos. That way people will look at them and, they won't fall asleep. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. No, you guys are awesome. You guys do a great job. You're Thank just you great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us. We really appreciate this. It's been fascinating. Yes. it ha This has been awesome. Thank you. You're welcome, guys. Glad to be on your program. And thanks for the opportunity. So what did you think about that? I, I loved it. I've known Mike for several years now because uh, he's he's been in Space Hipsters for quite some time and he's I've met him at Space Fest and um, I ran into him at Northrop Grumman a few years back. I was getting a tour there and he's just a fantastic guy and I, I 
his Skylab model that he made in the 70s is probably the best Skylab model I've seen because it's yeah. accurate. It, it looks like it. It looks like the photos. We'll just put it that way. You know, it's missing some pieces, parts, and it, it doesn't look like the I've seen other models that are, you know, the 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 you know, the tech drawing version, like, oh, this is what it was supposed to look like. And this is the real thing. So it looks, it's just amazing. He does an incredible job. And, and I also loved his book he did on, and we're going to plug it in our show notes, his book he did on uh, space advocacy, because he, he was very active in, in that between, you know, the L5 society, the NSS and other things. So yeah, I'm, I'm super thrilled to have him on our show. And that was a really fun conversation. Yeah, for sure. Now, we could have him back on the podcast, and I'm sure we will, to talk about space advocacy and also about some of his engineering work that he did within the industry. There's so much stuff we could have him talk about, but we focused on modeling today, but I'm sure we'll get him back, and there will be a link to his space advocacy book within the show notes. Do check that out as well. Uh, what a lovely guy, but you forget, don't you, that people who work in the industry are still also fans of space. It, it's a very similar thing to what I do, I guess. A lot of musicians, we're music fans as well. So that's a big thing, and I love it. And I think his enthusiasm for space comes through the fact that his hobby is then building models of it all. It's great. Absolutely. I, it's really cool because I've talked to a few people who work in, you know, who work in the industry. And when I say work in the industry, either they work at contractors or they work at NASA itself. And I've talked to a few people recently and it's like they've sort of extended, you know, their their industry knowledge to other things. Like, for example, Mike used his knowledge to work on models and to sort of pursue that as a hobby. And he's also pretty knowledgeable on space history. And I've talked to a few people who sort of extended it to now they write, you know, about spaceflight history or, you know, sort of niche things in space history, which I love that kind of stuff. So yeah. um, it's really, I really love to see that because it just shows that, you know, you can have that knowledge and just put it in a lot of different places. It doesn't necessarily have to be just for engineers. I just think that's really cool. I agree. Uh, yeah, there was a few standout moments in that for me. One, when he was uh, walking through the corridors and saw some of the original Mylar for, that would have been used on the Skylab Sunshield. Amazing. And he incorporated it into his model. How special is that? Yeah, that model Whoa. is amazing because it's got the sun shield and then on top of it, it has the twin pole sunshade, just like the real thing. Like, yeah. I like accuracy. So I think that's really cool. I also love the fact that I, I had that image of him crawling through the dumpsters, uh, looking for the <laughs> for the handbooks and the and the guides, the technical guides and, and keeping them and, and, and now obviously publishing them and letting people see those things as well, which is wonderful. I love that. That bit yeah. really made me smile. Oh yeah, keeps it keeps the history alive, definitely. Absolutely. So as always, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, you can watch the full unedited video of our interview with Mike in our members area. If you're not a member, please consider joining us over there at patreon.com forward slash space and things. And if you'd like to know more about Mike and his models and his books, uh, then obviously he mentioned some of those links, but they're all going to be in the show notes. So check out our show notes either within your podcast provider or on spaceandthingspodcast.com and uh, I don't know how it all worked out but apparently it did somehow <laughs> but there was things I thought was going right you know, I remember from the beginning nothing fit we got that stuff they got geniuses figuring stuff out to like the nanometer right or whatever you know the spot. and it's still not fitting we're both trying stuff I don't know what's going on out there but somehow I think it all worked
And so on to this week's news stories. There have been three launches since we last recorded. SpaceX launched a classified payload on one of their Falcon 9 rockets for the US National Reconnaissance Office from Vandenberg's Space Force Base in California. They also launched 49 more Starlink satellites on a Falcon 9 rocket from Kennedy Space Center. And the Russian military also launched their own reconnaissance satellites on a Soyuz 2.1A rocket from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia. I think I've said that correct. Who knows? Uh, I think so. <laughs> uh, full details and videos, if they exist, will be posted within our show notes, as mentioned earlier on. Speaking of launches, the startup company Astra attempted to launch their first operational payload into orbit on their first launch attempted from Kennedy Space Center this week. Unfortunately, the launch was aborted after one second due to a minor telemetry issue. They have not yet issued a new launch date. Astra has so far conducted four orbital launches from their Pacific Spaceport Complex in Alaska, and they did reach space on two of those flights, including its most recent mission in November, although that carried a dummy payload, whereas this launch scrub was hoping to put four CubeSats into orbit. Hopefully, they'll fix this problem soon enough and continue to make progress. Yeah, it's a company I've really enjoyed watching develop, and uh, I think I'm going to continue enjoying it. It's, it's it, it looks like they're doing good stuff. Absolutely. Meanwhile, on Mars, the Ingenuity helicopter has successfully completed its 19th flight, which lasted for 100 seconds and covered 205 feet or 52 meters. It's getting quite ridiculous now. This little thing was only supposed to be operational for a month or two and make a handful of flights, and now we're approaching a year on the planet and it's made nearly 20 flights. This is the gift that keeps on giving. And while we're talking about perseverance and ingenuity being on Mars for nearly a year, NASA this week picked Lockheed Martin to build a rocket to carry the samples which Perseverance is collecting back to Earth. The Mars Ascent vehicle contract is worth nearly $200 million and they're hoping it will be able to get to Mars and send the samples back as early as 2031. Now this is a two-part mission with two Two separate missions. You've got the the sample retrieval lander, which is Na- a NASA-led mission, which will deliver the Mars Ascent vehicle and the European Space Agency's Fetch rover. I love the name of that Fetch rover uh, to the Martian surface. The rover will go and collect the samples from the spots where Perseverance has cached them and bring them back to the ascent vehicle, which will launch them from the surface and meet up with a separate vehicle, ESA's Earth Return Orbiter, which will launch completely separately from Earth. This whole plan is just so crazy, and the maths behind it I cannot even think about. Or oh, It's not even something I really want to think about it because I think it's just going to blow my mind. It's just ridiculous they're trying to do this, and I love it. Exactly. It really blows my mind within... A little over 50 years from Viking, they're going to, that'll be in place because Viking, you know, Viking was amazing, but in in contrast, it looks so simple compared to that, you know? So uh, it blows my mind that we've been able to make those steps in my lifetime, which alternately makes me feel old and, you know, amazed at the same time. I think that's incredible. So... Speaking of of going back to our roots and the moon, (laughs) NASA has also announced that there will be a delay in the rollout of Artemis 1's rocket. Uh, While they don't have any particular issues, they just want to take more time to completely close out activities inside the vehicle assembly building. It's one of those things which you'd you'd rather take the time to get right. I I get it. Um, Much like we've talked recently about the delays which the uh, James Webb telescope experienced, Um, And yet, so far, its flight has been pretty much flawless, probably because they took the time to get things right. 
of we've got to hope it's the same process here. Also, while we're talking about NASA and the moon, NASA tweeted a wonderful photo from the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory with the caption, kill the lights. We're simulating a moonwalk. Uh, basically, it's a dark photo of NASA personnel practicing moonwalks at the lunar south pole with the lights out. Uh, it looks really cool, and I- I'd love to do that myself. Yeah, sign me Just, up. Sign me up. Yeah, I- 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 I'll be honest. I'm not a great swimmer, and... I'm afraid of the dark, and I'll do it. So time to beat my fears now. Absolutely, so. yeah. I'd, I'd, lo- I'd just love to go and see that big pool as well. See them working in there. That'd be incredible, isn't it? That that massive swimming pool, and yeah, to just oh, sink yeah. It, put you in a spacesuit, sink you down to the bottom, practice doing the moonwalk. Yes, please. I would love to have a go. Yep, same here. And while we're talking about the moon, I'd like to draw people's attention to a wonderful article on Conversation.com, written by one of our previous guests, who we also talked about last week, space archaeologist Dr. Alice Gorman. It's about an upper stage of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, which launched in 2015 and will shortly crash into the moon. You're seeing a lot of uh, clickbaity headlines about this. But this article points out that why this isn't really a big deal to a space archaeologist is an incredibly interesting thing, as it's soon going to become the moon's newest archaeological site, joining more than a hundred other locations that document human activity on the moon. It's a really great article that goes into the history of landings and crash landings on the moon and what it all means. So I'm going to post a link to that within the show notes because I really enjoyed that article and I thought it was really interesting. That's awesome. I'm embarrassed to admit this. I haven't read it yet, so um, I will definitely check it out myself in the show notes. That I'm I'm always chronically behind on reading, so I, I need to look at it myself. It's one of those things, though, isn't it? Because we see all these these headlines of SpaceX going to crash land onto the moon yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And actually, this has taken a constructive approach to addressing that and using it as an opportunity to educate people on on what's landed on the moon and, and what the irrelevance of that is. I just think it's a really interesting take on the whole thing. Absolutely, you know, because I'm thinking like I know Ranger crashed into the moon a, a few times, so I'm like, it's not, it doesn't seem that big of a deal, you know. And there's other objects that have <laughs> made their way there, so yeah, it, it that's that's a really kind of a neat way to look at it. I like that because it, and it's an escape from you know the clickbaity type of headlines, you know. Absolutely. So talking of clickbait. <laughs> Yes. Speaking of clickbait, that's been driving me nuts all week. Oh my god! I can imagine the space hipsters uh, admin team have been loving this story. It's burning, and then people get in fights about it. Like they have any control over the ISS themselves. People be fighting over it, and I'm like, guys, okay. So finally, while we're talking about things crash landing, including my um, mental health. NASA, how am I going to get through this? NASA has announced that the ISS will plunge into the sea at its final resting place at Point Nemo in the Pacific Ocean in January 2031. This is a story which seemed to be talked about a lot in the mainstream media and was picked up by those who don't necessarily follow uh, space news as closely as we do. It's not really a shock to us. We've always known this was going to be the case, but the date is a new bit of information. Kind of. But the world, yeah, kind of. But the world certainly got excited about this. <laughs> yeah. um, Point Nemo is the resting place for many dead satellites and space stations such as Russia's Mir, so it's often referred to as a spacecraft cemetery. It's 2,688 kilometers or 1,670 miles from nearest land masses. 
It is often called the world's most lonely place. Uh, Nemo in Latin means, uh, quote, no one. And also it's a reference to Jules Verne's uh, Captain Nemo. So one day the glorious ISS or, or what's remaining of it after it's broken up in the atmosphere will end up there. The, uh, the, the, one, the one thing about this that, that does kind of fascinate me is when it does happen, which we know, we've always known will happen at some point, wouldn't it be great if we get to see some of it come, coming down? I, I, I don't know. There's, there's a part of me that's fascinated by that and how they're actually going to go about it, whether they're going to break it up at all before they do it. I don't know. But anyway, I have got a morbid fascination about this, but not to the level that we've seen online. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wish, and I don't know if this will be possible, if this would even be allowed, because um, they probably don't want, you know, people in the proximity of, you know, any debris or anything like that. But um, I wonder if there's a way to remotely, like, film it or something yeah. like that. You know, maybe they could put a a boy or just something i don't know if there's anything you know drop something i have no idea like a camera i have no idea because there's that part of me that's like i would like to see it break up i'm kind of curious as to what it's gonna look like you know well we've got all of that to look forward to but not quite yet we've got quite a while yet we got nine years so we got we got some time exactly And that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Mike. And as we said in the intro, please do send us photos of your own models or attempts at modeling. Uh, we'd love to see them. Attempts at modeling. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we've asked for those photos, but we mean model rockets, okay? We don't mean your attempts at modeling in the shower or anything like that. <laughs> I've realized there's a in a dirty yeah. in a dirty ass mirror. Yes, yes, we are we do not want unsolicited nudes right now. We just want to see yeah, we don't your spacecraft that. models. That's what we would like to see. Anyway, <laughs> we're making a lot of plans right now. Uh, so if you want to be the first to find out who we've got coming up, join our Patreon page as we discussed earlier. That's patreon.com forward slash space and things. You also get some other great goodies, and we're starting to plan something for our hundredth show, which we hope our Patreon subscribers might be able to attend. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so sad we had to say that about modeling. Yeah, I, as, soon as, I, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, God, someone that's that could get taken the wrong way, couldn't it? Yeah, somebody's going to send us a <laughs> selfie yeah. of, or something bad. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the more Patreons, the merrier. But we're just as thrilled that anyone is even willing to listen to our little Absolutely. podcast. So thank you for your support. And we hope you've had a great week. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.